So we're starting a new series this morning called Course Corrections, Building Trust with the Next Generation. According to the Gallup organization, in the time that the babies that are in our nursery right now are my children's age, there will be over a billion Christians in Africa. Christianity is exploding around the world. But in the time that my kids move from the nursery till where they are now, according to people's self-reporting through the Gallup poll, we went from 70% of our population in the United States being part of a church to 47%. We're one of the, in the West, our trust in our institutions is waning. And so we're going to be talking about how do you rebuild trust with the next generation? How do we as a church rebuild trust with the next generation? You know, why would people be, you know, sort of moving away from the church? Now, maybe they still are believers and maybe they're just distrustful of the institutional church. But why are people moving away from and out of the pattern of being a part of a church? You know, they call it the rise of the nuns, people who check the box. They don't check any particular box. They, when you ask them what faith are you a part of, they check none. And I, I think maybe one of the reasons may be what, uh, what people, what children are made to wear, you know, going to church. Here's what my parents uh, made me wear when I was going to church. This is, uh, that's me on the, on the left. Yes, that's tweed. Now, uh, I want you to check out the pants here in this next frame here. Check out those pants. Pretty awesome, huh? Yeah. Really glad, you know, my hair turned brown when I was a teenager. I'm glad it's turned back to blonde. You know, isn't that nice? It's great. But you know, it's not about wearing tweed. It's not about the itchy shirts. It's about losing trust with what our institution is built around. When we when we when we stray off of alignment with what. The church was founded to be a part, to be about, to be founded on, and we stray away from it. So we're going to be looking at four different ways that we tend to drift off course: moralism and hypocrisy, and uh, pietism, and sort of shallow optimism. Those four different drifts. We're going to be looking at that over the next four weeks. So this morning. Let's take a look at moralism. You know, the posture that, that the church has had towards our culture, and it's important that we, that, that we talk about culture, it's important that we understand what's going on in the trends of culture, but the posture that the institutional church has had towards culture has become rather adversarial. And so it's, it's important, I think, for us to recognize that what people outside the church may be getting from us is what Jesus talked about when he said, you know, remove the log from your own eye before you attempt to remove the speck from somebody else's eye. Moralism is like, you know, morals, we need morals. Morals is the good, right? It's, it's what's good and right and true. Those are morals. But moralism is like being a hall monitor for everybody else's morals, right? 
And so if, if the church is more about moralism than morals, if it's more about, uh, about getting the, the speck out of somebody else's eye than when we're walking around with a log in our own eye, we can lose trust with the next generation. So how do we do that? How do we build trust again? By getting back in alignment with the good ourselves. From the Word of God, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's Word this morning. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you. But do not but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, through your word and by the movement of your spirit this morning, create in us clean hearts, O God. Amen. Well, if I stick with it a few more decades, then when I'm... My father's age and the age of the greatest generation, I will have invested a lifetime in an institution I used to have very little trust for. I I really didn't have a lot of trust for the local church. I didn't have a whole lot of love for it um, until I began, my life began to be centered on the gospel. I just didn't see the point in getting together with other people in tweed jackets. And so... um, So I understand, though, when you invest yourself in an institution, an organization that forms itself around something that you think is the best thing we have going, the best thing that God has ever provided, the gospel. When you organize around uh, your faith in a way that champions what is good and right and truth, when you invest yourself in that, you're invested And when you see it torn down and deconstructed with nothing else put in its place, that's pretty disconcerting. And so I I understand and empathize with the greatest generation as I hear them lament about the ways that, that our institutions are being torn down, leaving a vacuum with nothing in their place. I understand that. But I also feel sort of sandwiched between that generation and the up-and-coming generations that have lost faith with those institutions 
because the, these institutions are not perfect, right? And so it's easy when you haven't invested yourself in the institutions just to say, well, they're not perfect, so I'm not going to be a part of it. You know, so, but I understand when, when you feel like you're a younger generation and you feel like there are a lot of people who've been left out or like there have been people who've been put down by these uh, institutions, especially the local church. I understand and I can empathize with both those generations. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at how do, we, how do we build that bridge back? How do we build trust back for the next generation? What is, what is the next generation worth? What's the next generation worth? Is it worth taking a few weeks to ask tough questions about ourselves? I think it is. I think it is. So this morning, let's take a look at the ways that when we're hall monitors for the good, instead of just simply aligning with the good, that can be... That can be sort of repelling. Let's take a look at how we have so much to be for. And so rather than cursing the darkness of people who are living far from God, let's talk about how do we light a light. We have good news, right? The gospel means good news. And so let's ask this question this morning. Here's the, here's the focused question this morning. What's so good about the good news? What's so good about it? What makes it good? And, and, and here's what we're going to see in this passage. The good news is good because it's revealed, it's universal, and it's freeing. That's what makes the good news good. It's revealed. It's not man-made. It's not centered on people. It's universal, right? It's universal. It brings people together. It doesn't tear them apart. And it's freeing. It's freeing. So let's first, it's, it's good. The good news is good because it's revealed. It's not something we made up. It's not something you would have made up. If you've ever seen animals behave out on the savanna, you know, if we're just really smart animals, right? And for most of human history, you can see that, 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 it, that it was the strong eat the weak, that it's all competitive. We wouldn't have created the gospel. We wouldn't have made something like, like, like uh, love your enemies, it's very difficult for us to even embrace that right now, isn't it? <laughs> it's revealed. It's revealed. It's not centered on human ability or the individual effort. It's centered on God. It's revealed. It brings light to lives because it's centered on God. You can see uh, in, in this opening, these opening remarks, Jesus says that the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. The seed of Moses. What's he saying? He's saying that, that they do represent what is good and right and true. That when they speak, they're speaking with the authority of Moses who, who received God's revelation on Mount Sinai, who stood before the holy God such that he had to veil his face so that the glory of it would not intimidate the people he was speaking to. He, he, he was the one who stood before a bush that was on fire and yet not consumed. Somebody who, who removed his shoes on the holy ground of God who revealed himself. And so there is in what the Pharisees are saying. We're, we're always beating up on the Pharisees. We're going to beat them up, beat them up this morning again. But, but first, Jesus is saying, don't miss what they're saying. What they're saying, what they're representing, the law, what is good and right and true, they're representing it. It's revealed truth. But he's saying, do what they say and not what they do, right? 
Do what they say. And, and don't, I love this, uh, I love this expression. Don't discount an idea just because of somebody who represents it, right? You see somebody out there who represents a really good idea, but you don't really appreciate who they are. Don't discount the idea just because of someone who happens to represent that idea. That's what he's saying. Don't discount a truth just because you don't respect the people who represent it. So do what they say, but not what they do. Well, what are they doing? Well, they're adding layers to it. They're making it very specific so that it now no longer is centered on God, but on human effort. And so now we're in control of the law. We, we are the ones who are able to perform the law. What, what, what he's saying is that don't do what the Pharisees do. They don't get the word of truth, the goodness and the good news of God into their hearts. But they're just simply trying to make it so specific so that they are in control of it. We can see this today. We see the ways that we do the same thing over and over again. I'm going to give you an example uh, from a, a sort of our modern doctrine. Our modern doctrine in our culture is, is really pluralism. And I know it's very concerning to people, and I, I, it's, it's concerning to me too. It's the idea that there is no truth, or relativism really is, the idea there is no truth, everybody just needs to decide for themselves what's true. You know, even our Supreme Court, Justice Kennedy in the Casey case, you know, said as much that, 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 that freedom is to be able to decide for yourself what is true. And so we're, we're even codifying it through the Supreme Court in our court cases, our court records. Case law is saying <laughs> that we all decide for ourselves what is true. That sounds very generous, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound generous? Sounds generous. There's, a, there's an illustration about this idea of being generous with the truth. And it's, it, it, it's spoken of in a book that's been very important to me over my life called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. It was written by Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary to India for 40 years. And so he was in, I mean, think of Hinduisms. I mean, they've got more gods than people in, 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 uh, in Hinduism. And so, you know, you're, you're talking about people who have this plural idea of what truth is all about and what God is all about. And so Leslie, Leslie Newbegin spent four decades immersed in that kind of culture. So he has so much to say to us as our country becomes more and more pluralistic. And so what he noticed was is that people kept using the same illustration of a king uh, and five blind men and an elephant. He kept hearing this over and over again, that, that to be generous with the truth is, is to be the most generous person in the room. And the idea is that, that the king calls these... He wants to teach this idea of being generous with, with perspectives and with the truth, right? So he, he calls everyone together, and he brings these five blind men, and he puts an elephant right there in the middle of them, and he says, and you know the story. I mean, the five blind men, they, they go up, and they say, well, you know, he says, describe to me an elephant, and one of them goes up to his leg, and he feels the leg, and he says, oh, it's much like a tree, and another one goes up to a tusk and says, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a plow, you know, like the, the forks on a plow. Uh, another one says, no, 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 it's not like that at all. It's like... It's like a, a wall, you know, he's feeling the side of the elephant. Another one says, no, it's like a bush, you know, it's like he's feeling the tail of the elephant. And so, of course, the, the point that the king is making is that, um, 
that, that none, none of us has the complete picture. None of us has the truth. And he kept hearing this over and over again. And that was the context in which he was, his ministry grew. And, and he, as an intellectual giant, began to form his own worldview. And then he made this revela- revelation. It, it sort of came to him. It said this. He said, the story is constantly told in order to neutralize the affirmation of great religions, to suggest that they learn humility, to recognize that none of them can have more than one aspect of the truth. But the story is told by the king, and it is the immensely arrogant claim of one who sees the full truth, which all the world's religions are only groping after. Did you follow that? You see, the perspective of the king presumes to see the whole picture, right? Then he goes on, he says this, there's an appearance of humility used to invalidate all claims to truth, to discern them. And in fact, it's an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. Well, see, this is, this is the modern way in our day and age that we do what the Pharisees used to do. Rather than being under truth, rather than centering life on revealed truth and the idea that God can speak, that God created, that, that we belong to him, now we're in control of it. And we're pretending to be generous about it, pretending to be humble about it. But when in fact what we're doing is it's sort of smoke and mirrors to be in command and control over what is true, over what is good, and over what is right. Now, we're in charge. And you see the problem with that is <laughs> if, our, if the chief problem with humanity is that we're self-centered, right? Think back to the savannah, right? The hyenas and the lions... If the problem is that we're centered on ourselves, what if we're centered on post-enlightenment human reason? What can call us out of ourselves? This false humility to be generous with what's true or the revealed truth, the revealed good news of God. So, we have good news to share. It's not centered on us. It's not something we came up with. It's not even Western. <laughs> it's, it, it's not Caucasian. It's, it, it doesn't arise out of Northern European culture. It's right there in the center of East and West. We have revealed truth. We have goodness to center on that comes from God and not from us. The second, the reason why we have light to share instead of cursing the darkness, the reason why the good news is good is because it's universal, not tribal. It's universal. It brings people together rather than dividing people according to groups. It unites. It's like, it, it, it's, the good news is good the way gravity is good. It's good for everybody. We, we, we know that gravity exists. It's a universal law. We know that, that it affects everyone the same way. And so when we recognize 
that we have this kind of good news, it can bring people together. Instead, what you see happening in this passage is you've got the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, who are interested in the law only for outward appearances. Why? Because it elevates them. Because if they can put themselves as morally superior to other people, then they can elevate their culture or their tribe over others. They can contrast themselves and put others down and now feel good about themselves. And you know there's power in that. And you know what? When people see the church doing that, it discredits us. We lose trust with people outside the church. They say, oh, you guys are doing the same thing everybody else is doing. You're just making a claim to have it better than the rest of us so that you can be in charge and put us down. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were doing it with the truth, right? Jesus said they sit on the seat of Moses, but they're abusing their position rather than using it to serve, rather than using it as a way, if they're a teacher or a rabbi, it, rather than, it, it becomes a way to preside over people rather than a way to serve them, that they may know the truth and that the truth may set them free. You know, <laughs> there's a way that we, we, we do this. You can see this in, in, in our modern times too. Look back just at, at some of the ways that we take a, a common problem that we have. Like, like people who have not, right? The haves and the have-nots. Think of the haves and the have How are we going to deal with a problem that some people have less than others, that some people are disadvantaged? How are we going to deal with the fact that some people uh, need a little bit more help than others? They don't have the same kind of background or they don't have the same kind of talent or skills. They don't have the same kind of connections and resources. How are we going to deal with that? And, you know, in, in, the, in the late 60s, as the Johnson administration took over after, uh, after Kennedy was killed, he came up with this idea called the Great Society. And this, this, isn't, a political, this isn't a political speech. This is, this is just an example of how you know, both on the right and on the left, we get it wrong sometimes. And when we try to solve social problems and we do it in such a way that, that, that stands on the backs of victims to elevate ourselves, that's a problem. That's a real problem. And so the Great Society was supposed to fix everything, right? It's supposed to elevate people who did not have. It's supposed to even things out. But what ended up happening was you created greater dependency upon our federal government. And that came after a whole wave of, of, the, the, of, of thinking from, from, from Woodrow Wilson. When, when he, he went from Princeton, the, the president of Princeton to the president of the United States, he decided that, that really we needed to control things a lot more centrally. It was getting too big, and so we needed a lot more central administration. And so what we ended up doing was thinking that we could fix all our problems by administrative fiat rather than recognizing that we've got bigger problems than management can solve from the Politburo. Can't do it that way. The great society, what, what ends up happening is when you, when you champion the cause of a victim to elevate yourself when you're trying to solve a common problem, but you're doing it in order to gain power over everyone. Then it's just moralism. You're just putting other people down. You're saying you've got it wrong. We've got it right. Power to our tribe. But you're you're bringing power to your tribe on the backs of the people you say you're trying to help? It's horrible. And the church ought to understand the difference between that. And we ought to understand what corrects it. What corrects it isn't 
Better politics. Yeah, better politics definitely helps. But it's more fundamental than that. We've got to come back and understand, well, why are we doing it this way? It's because of human nature. And if we in the church don't understand that we are capable of the same kind of problems, of the, of the same kind of abuses of power, and if we're not admitting, and if we don't have a, a system, or we're, not, we're not willing to put energy into it and admit that we've got a log in our eye, then we're just simply going to come across like people who are just trying to have it right, like we're the ones who are going to fix the problems, and we're going to do it in such a way that's going to bring power to our tribe. Instead, what we have to offer, as Jesus is saying, is a posture of servant leadership. You heard Harry say it earlier. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, don't, don't, have, don't have rabbis. Don't even call people. Fun. What's he saying? Don't elevate some, unless, of course, they're going to serve you. Yeah, people are set aside. So, so, so the, the pastors of this church are set aside to serve you, to, to work, to create things, not to preside. The elders and the deacons, are not, they're not elevated in a way that says that, that they're better than the rest of us. They're, they're, they're called out for a season of the way that geese, you know, you see geese flying in, in formation. You've heard this before, that, that the geese that are flying out front are actually doing a service to the people who are coming behind them. They're creating a slipstream. That's servant leadership. This is the kind of leadership that we're capable of because we have the good news, because we know that we have one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism that unites us. And so leadership in the church needs to be servant leadership. That's what Jesus is saying. Let the greatest among you serve. Because anybody who elevates themselves is going to be, be brought down. And so when we, and it's amazing to, 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 to see the public stubble on this. You know, there's a, there a study done by um, Jim Collins over in, in uh, California at, 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 um, at Stanford. They did this big study of, of companies that went from good to great. And one of the keys was servant leadership. How shameful is it that the local church should find out from industry that they should have servant leaders we ought to be leading. And Jesus is saying, get out there in front to serve. You see, we have light. We have good news. And finally this. Why is the good news good? It's good because it frees people. It frees people. Our good news sets people free. Verse 4. Jesus is lamenting the fact that all of these extra 613 additional rules that are really traditions that the Pharisees are loading onto the people, that they're doing it in a way that binds people's conscience but doesn't set them free. And Jesus is saying, this is not good. People feel guilty. I, you know, I've tried to frame this in a way that doesn't make you feel guilty. Maybe you felt guilty during the course of what I've said. <laughs> but here's the good news. That's not where God wants us living. M let me give you an example. So I, I was talking with, um, with one of my college roommates who's very close with a retired pastor. I'm not going to tell you who it is because I don't have permission. to. I, I don't know that he told this story publicly. but So... Um, so this, this pastor was asking his kids, what's the most important thing I taught you growing up? What's the most important thing I taught you? 
And he asked them each individually. And the first one said, do your best. He said, okay, all right. That's, that's the most important thing I've, I've taught you when you were growing up. Yeah, the, he, his kids are grown. Yeah, do your best. And he went to the second one. He said, what's the most important thing I've taught you? And, uh, and he said, do your best. He did it separately, so, so separately. And then he went to his, his, his third child. And he said, what's the most in, important thing that I taught you growing up? And she said, God loves me. And he said, to my, uh, he said to my college roommate, he said, well, so I raised two Pharisees and a Christian. <laughs> Where does God want us living? He wants us living the story of the gospel that sets us free. You see, the Pharisees knew that God said over and over again, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That ultimately there's going to be a Savior that completes the sacrificial system. That it's, it's not based on anything that you do. It's going to be graciously given to you. I want you to live there in the freedom of forgiveness. That's where you need to live. In practice, what does it look like as we close? What, what's it look like in practice for us to, to take a fa- our face of the church, the local church, as we face outward, what face do they see? Do they see the face of people who are just always trying to get the speck out of other people's eyes, the hall monitors for morality? Yeah, there's a time to stand up and draw lines and say, hey, this isn't right. There's a time for that. But first, we have to get something else right. They need to see the face of men and women, boys and girls, who are living into the freedom of the good news, that have the resources to say, yeah, we're not perfect. We got the log in our eye, but we have the resources to admit it. You see, that's Christianity. That's the good news. The resources of forgiveness, of the mercy of God, to face outwardly with confidence that we are broken people too. But we're not trying to layer it up. We're not trying to put others down. We're not trying to power up. We're not being tribal. We're ready to let the people outside of the kingdom of God see our face. And what they see are people who are admitting, admitting, willing to admit, have the confidence to admit, have the joy to admit, hey, we're broken people too. The meek shall inherit the earth. It looks a lot like this. I I saw this debate one time, and and you know, the the, the kinds of debates where they have a, a token Christian who's supposed to make everything really ugly and, and, and nasty. So there's, there's certain uh, programs that want certain personalities, just um, caustic personalities to come on their program and misrepresent the gospel and instead be moralistic on their program. That's what they want. And so there was this, there, there was this um, group of people who, who were saying, hey, we're, we're not monogamous. We're, we're, we're serial monogamous. We all have open marriages, and, and uh, this is how we're living our lives. And, um, and so, you know, they wanted the Christian to come on there and just say, you people are you know, horrible. I can't believe you're doing this. You know, bring out your hammer and just like hit them with the gospel guns, right? You know, poof, you guys are messed up, right? That's what he was supposed to do. But this is what he said. This is what he said. I'll never forget it. It came to to his time to give his opinion. 
And they said, well, what do you think about this serial monogamy, these open marriages where, you know, they're just sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're just sort of one, after, one partner after another. And he said, well, uh, I just want you, this is what I want you to say to you, what I wanted to say to you is, if, if after a few years of doing this, you find yourself heartbroken, if you find yourself hurt, that you might consider the gospel. You might consider it uh, doing what the scriptures say. Um, that if at the end of doing it your way, you find that it hurts you, that you might consider another way. You see, that's compassion. That's somebody who's coming from a place of humility. That's coming from a place of genuine forgiveness, a place of someone who knows the mercy of God and faces outward, not as a perfect person, not as a superior person, but a person who's confident in the gospel, not in himself. That'll bring, bring trust back to the church, won't it? Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you that the face of Jesus is the face of a savior, the face of a servant leader, the face of mercy. And so we pray, Lord, that as we examine ourselves, our lifestyle, that as we think about the ways that we need to gain, regain trust with the next generations, you give us the confidence to look at ourselves and to be an inviting kind of people, not a judging kind of people. The people who understand the truth and are ready to stand up for truth, but first to get this right, that truth centers not upon us, not even upon the institution, but upon you, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray.